Hello, and welcome to the No Good Poetry Podcast. Each week we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of poetry. This is episode 33. With Joseph B. Avenue and Joseph Makos. This is the good, bad, and the ugly, isn't it? There's some ugly shit out there, kids. Let's make the world safer for poetry. All right, so we are back on St. Claude Street on a Friday night. Talk about some poetry. <laughs> I think that's what we do on this. Uh... Uh, <laughs> and we're maybe uh, a little more casual this evening. I don't know what. Uh, we don't have a guest. It's no been a guest. little while since we've had no guest. That's all right, though. We just had a, a studio full of. Uninvited guests. Friendly, but uninvited guests. We had to shoo them out (laughs) so we could record the episode. Probably some guests after, too. So, we've been thinking a lot about... Well, there's a bunch of stuff. You know, you start thinking about poetry, and you start thinking about more poetry and more poetry. But uh, I've had some experiences this past year uh, at NOCA, where uh, I was asked to come in and teach some... Dada poetry. Some yeah, 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 yeah. Dada poetry, and so I know you were doing like the, co- about the collages. Like, did you do other stuff too, or is that like the? It was mainly it, and we, you know, we basically just I brought in, you know, it was it was a way to think about poetry differently. The uh, teacher Andy Young, poet Andy Young, she had me come in and uh, talk. Uh, about just sort of like introduce Dada and like explain how it wasn't just like a visual art thing that a lot of people think it's just a visual art thing, right? Yeah, a lot of yeah. people do. A lot of people don't know that there's like a poetry. Which is weird to me. I think of Dada as more words than visual, although I know the visual stuff exists. But there's a lot of it. You know? Yeah, I mean, there's like a whole in the Pompidou. There's like a whole wing of Dada, you know. But uh, she wanted me to come in and talk uh, and present Dada from the perspective of like its origination and sort of like a little bit about its political and uh, sort of present that and then kind of talk about their games that they played. And then I brought in a mix of three different things, three or four different things. Usually it was four different things. I would bring the local paper from the day. I would get an advocate and a times pick. And then I would bring in maybe like a local rag, like I would maybe bring in like a Gambit or Offbeat or or um, one of those like local magazines or whatever, a couple of those. And then I would bring like some, I would find like some fashion magazines, some high fashion, yeah, yeah, like yeah. Full of tons of like crazy surrealist images already, and uh, a few other things. And then we would we would do this game where uh, we we had scissors and glue on the table. And then everyone had like a 12 by 18 sheet of paper, 11 by 17, 12 by 18 sheet of paper. Everyone started with that. So it was like an exquisite corpse that you could see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every, we had like 90 minutes. So like every seven minutes, we would we would pass. The, 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 the okay, collages. that's cool. So you would pass the collage. That's a good idea. And then, and then the, the, the rule was that you could put, like you thought about it. A little bit, like don't like just jump right into it. It got really playful, of course. Like with a bunch of high school kids, of course they're gonna just like really want to jump right into it. And uh, we would, I would say, like okay, you can add like you can add like 
X many words and X many images yeah. per round. And then and then they would like slowly build them images and, and words and, and they you know so it was it was a pretty interesting experience to to be in there with these with these high school kids and see what they did and like at a school like NOCA and like your school too you guys have like sort of like a no censorship policy kind of ish loose. Well, open. yeah, I mean, I don't, it's pretty open. I mean, I think it would be hard to, yeah, yeah. But I, I mean, mean but, it would have to be something. But but like this is not a normal thing for everyone in America. Like, like yeah, yeah, it would have to be something like really offensive in some way. And I think no, like the same. Like it would to, yeah, it would have somebody. to be. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, that's different. So they so they were like, okay, we have no censorship, and, and like this that, the other thing. So you know, we were like, there was like some crazy. I mean, there was like you know. You take a bunch of high school kids and you put them together and you throw some fashion mags and some local newspapers and some other stuff and you throw it all together. And even those rags, what they have outside of the newspapers, you're going to get some interesting results. I think that that – well, the reason I brought that up and wanted to start into it because, you know, we, 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 we've talked about many times in this episode about um, sort of like poetry, like outreach and education. That's like sort of a theme that's coming through our, our this podcast. And – I really wonder. I really wonder a lot about this. Uh, sometimes to talk about, like, you know, what's the best way to get people to reading poetry? What's the best way to inspire people or like to get young people into reading poetry? Like poetry, poetry, not like not listening to hip hop or not listening to you know music. And well, not that there's anything. Yeah, I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that. No. But yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, but. I don't know, like, and I think it's funny, like, that's, I mean, that sounds like a good, that sounds like a cool exercise that you're doing with the, with the collages, but I, and, you know, and I do a lot of things like that myself, I like giving them surrealist kind of exercises and things to do, because I think that that's, the nice thing about those kind of exercises is that it runs pretty counter to what they've been taught about literature in their English classes, and I think it's very beneficial in that way, right, because it, Makes some connections. It makes some connections, and it makes them allow literature to be playful again, which sometimes I think gets sucked out of it. Uh, but then it's difficult because it's hard to come back from it just being playful. In some ways, like it's hard to be like, "Yes, that's cool. I'm glad you're doing. I'm glad you're trying to be funny because that's important, right? Like it's important to try to be funny. I'm even glad when you're trying to make." put sexual innuendo in there that's actually not a bad thing that's actually a good impulse to try to do that but that in and of itself is not poetry okay exactly but here's here's (laughs) when we created those right and we put them up on the wall in the room or whatever like on this bulletin board the whole point behind it right and i said i got I, i made sure that i brought this in at the very end of the of the of the lesson was like Use these, use these collages and look at them every day, maybe a new one, or just look at it and see what you see different every day. And maybe use a phrase from here and let it prompt you into creating something new from it. Yeah, you know what I tried this year? But I don't think any of them are really using it, unfortunately. There's that great book, oh god, I can't remember what it's called. It's got all these different poetry exercises in it. And most of them are not very well-known people, although some of them are. Some of them are some bit poets you would have heard of. But one of the ones I really liked in it was this idea of creating a universal poetry deck. 
and I gave them all a bunch of index cards, and you, it was like, you need to have this many things that are nouns, this many things that are verbs, this many things that are senses, this many things that are feelings, this many, and it can be idiosyncratic, and it's supposed to be your own thing. And the idea is you have this deck that anytime you get stuck when you're writing or anytime you feel like you don't know what you're doing, you just pull a card out of the deck and throw that word in there. Really? Which I loved. I mean, I made one myself. Really? How, how, I was how like, many cards thick was it? It was about, I think it was about 200 words. 200 cards? Yeah. Was it just words? Yeah, it was all words. It was all single words. But but it was like designed to be a good mix of different kinds of parts of speech and different kinds of abstract versus image sort of words. Dude, I'm getting an idea now. I don't want to give up the idea on the podcast because it's like, well, well, no, but okay, whatever. An idea, an idea, an idea. But look, what if we made? What if we made one of those that was like quadrilingual? That could be kind of cool. Or yeah. multilingual, maybe more than quadrilingual. Maybe like what would be five? I mean, but maybe the thing to do would be to make one where. I mean, I think actually the hardest thing of making that deck was keeping track of all the different types of words you were supposed to have. Like, you could literally just sell a pre-made set of cards with blanks and says, put... Because I think the nice thing about it is that it's personalized. You're picking things that, to you, are interesting or meaningful. Sure. But you could sell a blank thing where the cards are already labeled. Like, here, put a verb that's... Here, put an action verb. Here, put a noun that has to do with something that's going on in your head. Here, put a animal here put it you know like that kind of like you just have a blank thing but you have to fill it in yourself so it's still your personal deck that could be kind of cool right because yeah. i think that's the nice thing about it is it is a personal deck and you find that right you come back to your own words all the time whether you intend to or not hmm. and i think that's always funny right like yeah. i've certainly had some poets where i've helped them edit their collections and they're very worried about that. They're like, this poem has this word, and this poem also has this word, so I don't want to put them too close together. Or, I don't... Where to me, it's like, that's actually wonderful if you find yourself reverting to the same words and coming back to the same patterns. To me, that actually creates something really interesting in a collection if you're doing that, right? As long as there's other things going on, too, I think that can actually be something that's unifying and also creates a sort of musical pattern if you have the same words coming back over and over again, which is another thing that I like about the idea of that deck, because it means that maybe you will Draw the be incorporating thing. these same words over and over again into your work, right? Which could be nice if you're thinking about, like, a collection, for sure. Uh I'm just thinking of a way to do it, like, where, like, we, um, you know, like, uh, we do it where it's, like, like in Spanish and English, and, like, uh, do it so it's, like, on the card on one side it says in the English and the Spanish, and then you could, like, flip them through, and different people could interact with them, and we could well, create that could a be cool, community but... deck. Well, look, if we, if we do the uh, Uruguay thing, I think we could do that. But I think the idea would be, that would be a cool thing to do. You make the blank ones, but you make it ready to have English and Spanish on both sides. Exactly. 
but then you trade decks with someone, someone who speaks Spanish. The English-speaking per person trades with the Spanish-speaking person if they're bilingual or whatever, and you say, and now I'm going to translate those words for you. Or you could do it together and sit there, and you could describe to each other. That'd be cool, too, to be there. Like, cool too. If you didn't speak both languages, to be like... And then you might get misunderstandings, which might be interesting, too. You might have the wrong word on the other side. No, but, but yeah, <laughs> I, like, I, yeah. I just think like something like that would be so useful for like interacting with with my with my um, my Latin friends or my, my my South American friends. Like the idea that like we you could you could you could have this deck of cards and it could be like as you as you go through the poetry festival like. You have your you identify. Oh, what if we did that, themes. man? Though this is what I think is the but, best idea. Uh, but like, no, this is the best it, idea. This is, okay, I guess so. What you're saying but like, <laughs> you could create a. What I'm saying is like in that like week of time, we could create a vocabulary. You know that that is all like a shared common vocabulary yeah. through this game. This is what I want to do though. Okay, the idea I have of the it's you ask people for these different words. It just has the things printed on the card, and they have to write them in. You do that. You get, I don't know, the more the better. A hundred English language poets to do it, a hundred Spanish language poets to do it, and then you translate the sides too, and then you create some huge master deck of whatever, like a hundred times, of 2,000 cards created by both English language and Spanish language poets. But you do it with so we do it by created by by we do it by we do it by doing it at the event, right? Yeah. We use the all the And then we take all of that and print what they've written on there. Yeah. That would be pretty cool. Um, Imagine if you had a 2,000 word deck compiled. It might not be 2,000 because there's going to be repeats and you get rid of the repeats. But it would be thousands of words. It would be over 1,000 words. Yeah. Compiled not just by English, by both English language and Spanish language poets. And you, they're are all double sided where it's Spanish on one side, English on the other side. Okay. That would okay, be cool. Okay, okay, you know? I like it. Yeah, yeah that would yeah. be pretty nice. That would be an amazing tool. It would be amazing to work with, you know. Oh my God, yes! Because you, because it would be, it would be a way that, like, you know, just say that we could create this, this, this deck, right? And 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 you could give and you could print them and send them to them. It could be a tool used by translators. Well, I guess. I mean, it could be. I suppose. But I mean, just as way. just as like a generative tool for poetry, it would be amazing, and it would be kind of cool because think about it: you could be you're writing in English, and you're mostly using English words. But every now and then, you could decide, oh, I'm going to put the Spanish word for this instead of the English word in, or the, or vice versa. You're a Spanish poet, and you're writing your poem, and you're like, I need a word. Hmm, I can choose. Do I want the English word right now, or do I want the Spanish version of that word? And you could maybe have a Spanish poem where you have these English words thrown in. Would be interesting, right? Uh, or something that's a total like amalgam. Yeah, or like, or like, what if there's like an English word where there's multi, where there's some like we could deal. I mean, it would be it would be true if you wanted to open up the word like the sort of like thesaurus 
side of it. There could be some other things there too because you could be like, okay, this is a cup, but it's a glass, but it's this, but it's this. Well, but that's quite why I kind of like the idea of maybe having the poets translating for each other because there might be some slight misunderstandings there or some, which from a translating aspect would be bad, but from a poetry aspect might be nice to have some misunderstandings there in some way. Yes, some misunderstandings, profitable ambiguities, you yeah. know, this sort of like, yeah. Like, yeah, right, like, especially like false cognates and those sort of things, like you're not entirely sure and you're like, oh, I mean, that would almost be super cool to have like, or you could, I mean, if you really wanted to make it super interesting, you could have all these different versions on the other side and be like, this is... You could have someone's version who actually knows both languages. You could have versions of poets who don't know the language and their guesses at what it is. I mean, if you wanted to make it really complicated, that could be super cool. (laughs) Yeah. And the, like, interesting false cognates of the relations between those languages are also a very nice space to be in. With yeah, poetry, right? Like that—that that could be a cool thing. For some reason, this is reminding me of a story that Amora told me in Uruguay, and she she was telling me Amora Pena was like she was like, "I'm gonna tell you the story about when we did poetry festival here years ago. We had a first Mundial Poetica, which was like years ago, and then they brought it back last year, and this is the second of the new year, so it's really the third year. But next year it's the fourth year, but really it's the third year. So she was telling me about this per- the idea of performance." one night and she was explaining how there's like Pedro one of the Pedros had like uh he had a t- he had a he had a top he had a top right uh-huh. and and there was like a poet there's like these poets who had come from uh where the hell did they come from maybe maybe South America maybe not South America maybe like uh, South Africa or something and they were all like you know poetry is one thing performance is another thing and they're like man not really and they're like kind of like going back and forth and debating like you know, Wait, who is on the side of it being different things? Oh, the South American poet, I think, was South African poet was very much into like there's poetry and there's performance. Like then those two things don't cross over. Like huh, that seems when you read poetry odd. is one that thing. Seems odd to do, me, but okay, no, I know. yeah, yeah, yeah. When there's poetry is one thing, performance is another. I would and feel like, like in in Africa there's a very long tradition of performance and poetry being mixed together. But yeah, I, I, but yeah, forgive I don't know. me, yeah, it yeah. may not been from South Africa, but I'm pretty sure they said these guys were some, from South Africa. But they might have not been from South Africa. They might have been from somewhere else. And he goes, and 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 then and then like um and then like they're like no no no, and they kept debating it, and they couldn't really come to a consensus or really understanding about it. And and then like one of the Pedros is out there, um, uh, out there, uh, like playing with his top in the street, and then like. Like a toy like, top. A toy top. Just to be clear, because it sounds like he's like taking his shirt off and like he's like waving it around. The well, street, which be. <laughs> I don't. I don't doubt that he would do that actually. But uh, uh, you got to meet this guy. He's great. Uh, well, maybe we'll post a picture on the podcast. Um, but he was playing with the top, like wrapping it up and spinning it, and and everyone's like, "What the fuck is he doing?" Like in the street playing at the top, and then all of a sudden, the guy from South Africa, wherever he was from, was like. Oh, I had one of these when I was a kid. Like, let me show you how to do it. And, like, he tried to do it, and he tried to spin it, and it wasn't working, and he tried again. Okay, got the work kind of okay. And then, like, next thing you know, like, a cab driver pulls over, and he's like, 
where'd you get that? I had one of those when I was a kid. And he tried to do it. And next thing you know, she said that over the course of like three hours, like 10 people tried to do it. And everyone was like walking by like, oh, I knew how to do that when I was a kid. And like, and like, but it was, but it all came back. That the guy at the end came back and he's like, ah, I understand what you mean by performance again. No, I love that. That's a great metaphor because he's like, I understand. And that's exactly what we're talking uh, about, I think. But that's a great metaphor because it's because that's the problem in some ways with literature, right? Is that we lose the fun, we lose the game out of it. But playing with a top in the street in the street (laughs) is not poetry in itself although it can be part of it is what context is it placed in true right and it's the same thing with all of those things and i mean what we were over here and i was showing jeff this book and he's like oh you love surrealism and all this stuff you're always looking at that and it's like yeah i do but that's part of what i love about it because that's what it is and dada is the same thing i mean they're 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 brothers but it's this recognition of play is an important thing, but play in itself is not poetry. You've got to, like, that's the interesting thing. It's like taking play and taking humor and taking all these things that we do naturally as human beings but putting them into a context where they are still fun and they're still interesting, but they're also meaningful at the same time. But the context is an important part of that. And that's why I like doing those exercises, but that's the difficult part because the context is what makes it not just a game. And it's fine for it to be a game. I mean, I don't, whatever. Even if, it is, even if it doesn't get past the level of being a game, that's still worthwhile. But as far as developing good writing, you need to take it past the level of just being a game and being a game that you've put into context. Right. You know? Yeah. I mean, and I, I think that, you know, we, we actually talked about this last... We should we should bring in our guest from episode three again. Because now we're on episode 33, right? Is this 33? 33. Is this yeah. 33. You know, I want to, like, dial up. I want to... Can we phone a friend? Because, like, right now I want to dial up uh, Jess. And I want to say... I want to say, Jess, hey, we're 30 episodes in right now. And you're number three and we're on 33. We're still talking about games. We're still talking about games. No, because I tell you, I really want to... Because this is funny. Because, you know, Jess, like, had this idea, right? And I really was thinking about it. And... Then I was talking, and then now we're talking about this, and you brought this up out of the blue, which I didn't think you were going to bring it up. But I just had this conversation with this with this poet, Carolina, in Uruguay. We sort of had this conversation going about a game, maybe online, maybe video game, maybe app, maybe something like that. We don't know exactly what form it would take, but it would be... Uh, it would be... Hold on, you're going to... I don't know. You might hate it, you might <laughs> love it, but it's on the same path as your card game. Yeah, but it would be a poetry cryptology game using the international phonetic alphabet. Oh, okay. I, I'm not exactly sure what that would involve. All right, tell me more. So <laughs> you know what the I the yeah, I mean, okay, yeah. So like you know how of it's a symbol based and pronunciation based. Yeah. So 
I was trying to so think the, the, about okay. a shortcut. I mean, I know, but you didn't say. So we're saying IPA here. Yeah, IPA. Okay. So, so, so I was trying to figure out in my mind how my mind works a shortcut to understanding Spanish pronunciations. But not just Spanish pronunciations. Pronunciations sort of like across Spanish. Not just singularly like, oh, this is Uruguayan Spanish. But yeah, yeah. Across how I... Well, Jesus, that's impossible. Well, I know it's impossible. <laughs> but I was saying, like, if I could, if I could, if I could, I took linguistics in college, and I'm, I'm, I like, I remember a lot of the symbols, and I, I had the sort of like the eth, you know, and like all this yeah, symbols yeah, and shit. Yeah. So, like, I was like, well, what if I could approach speaking and understanding Spanish through the linguistic alphabet in a certain way, rather than just specifically through the context of the language. And I was thinking, like, imagine if we did, like, a crypto, like, a poetry game that also used, like, specific crypt, not crypto, but it's not cryptology, but, like, because crypt- well, that's essentially a homophonic translation. It's homophonic. Well, yeah, which, but- is, which, is, uh, which is always interesting. Um, that's essentially what you're doing, right? Yeah. But, but, it, but then we were, but then... I remembered this little pocket vest. Remember, I used to have that vest pocket anagram dictionary. Yeah, and it was like for Scrabble players. And do you do you remember remember me reading the first like intro? Yeah, I kind of remember like, you doing. There's that like a for, chapter yeah. on cryptology, and it talked about cryptography. How, like, cryptography. Sorry, cryptology must be about coffins. I would think. I don't know if that's even a term. <laughs> Crypt- but yeah, cryptography. I cryptography. think cryptography. Yeah. Uh, a ma- uh, 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 there's a whole chapter on crypt- cryptology and um, cryptography. I mean, wow, that's a whole nother. Hold on, hold on. Interesting but it was talking yeah, about yeah. ciphers and yeah. how they do ciphers is it's like a drop, like they take every letter of the alphabet and they shift it seven different spaces. Well, there's a lot of different ways of doing ciphers, but yeah, that's one of them. Yes, yeah, you know, and and then and then that's a basis for, but then that plus. Linguistic codes. Anyways, it was a way. Well, you could create the some of the crazy, game, complicated thing, but yeah, the, I don't the know. The purpose what. of the game was the the purpose of the game was to reveal poetry. You do this coding and you reveal poetry, and it's for people trying to understand poetry in another language, right? In a way. So I'm I do not understand what you mean, but you're saying okay. So let give let's give an example. So you're saying you have a poem in what language to begin? In, in uh, it's it's it actually would be it would actually would be in three languages. It would be in it would be in English. But you'd have it talk. translated into all three languages. Would, no, when you approach the piece to decode it and to understand it. Okay. It's in English, Spanish, and phonetic and and IPA. Okay. So you have to understand. Oh, so the this phonetic game, IPA is phonetics of which language is the part I'm not understanding. Uh, I think it would end up being phonetics of both languages. So you would have to, but there would be some sort of way that you would understand. It would like, be but it coded. would be like alternating oh, gonna, yeah, words, or what would? Well, you would know. You would know, like, hey, this one you're going to phonetically translate into English word. This one you're going to phonetically translate okay. into Spanish. Okay. Word. But sometimes it would be together. So you would, if you would translate in the Spanish and the English, you would uh, then you would understand how the words are related, right? Or or how those those translations. I mean, IPA is interesting in whole other levels. 
what if everyone was trained in reading IPA? Yeah. And then you could just... You wouldn't know the meaning of those things, but you would at least know the sounds of everything you were reading would be interesting. Well, remember... Yeah, so, like, I've thought about that specifically as, like, when I heard, like, the Brazilian poets read... The port, like the Portuguese-leaning Brazilian poets, le- read, and they're reading in their language, and then there's like other people reading in Spanish, but their pronunciations are different. Like someone would be like, "Oh yeah, this guy pronounces stuff completely different than like what the Uruguayans would even, you know." Well, yeah, and I guess well, that's a whole other complication that I'm not thinking of. That dialects complicate things a little more although you would still at least know what it sounded like what they intended well that's interesting to me too though right like because i think of even inside of english this is not any of the things we were planning on talking about okay but i think even in english of poets who i know where their what their background is and i know what they sound like or even ones where i've heard recordings of them or have seen them in real life and the way i read their poems on their page were so different from how they actually read them because of their dialects. And it does change how you read the poem. Totally. Which is interesting, right? Yeah. So that would, I mean, that would be kind of interesting on that level, even inside of your own language, to have, if everyone understood IPA and you could transcribe people's dialects into their poems would be super interesting. Wow. You know, like one, I think recently I was showing my students some Frank O'Hara readings, which to me is always a little jarring. I like the way that he reads his poems, but they're so different from how I read them in my head. He's got this strange mix of Boston accent and gay affectation Yeah, that is, I like... And even knowing it and somewhat hearing his voice in my head, some of the pronunciations are so different from how I read them when I read them on the page. It's interesting, you know? Or who was I... Who who else was I watching recently with their reading? And I was like, wow, that's very different from what I always read that poem I've experienced some of this, too, with with hearing poets read and and, uh, reading their work uh, and then hearing them read. I, I'll, I'll be honest, you know, I've been really disappointed. You know, you've, well, it depends. Re- Some people, it disappoints you when you hear them read. You're like, wow, it was a lot better the way I was reading it in my head. But then other <laughs> poets are like, I thought this wasn't very good, but then I heard you read it, and now it seems amazing to me. Yeah. You know, it goes both ways. But it's interesting, and it's something that you can't communicate in print. No. And then it's funny, but then so much of poetry in particular, but all all writing, I mean, I think the main way that it's being communicated is through print, and uh, yeah, it's weird. You're kind of losing that. True. And then think about things that you read centuries later, <laughs> and no one is entirely sure of the dialect. Maybe that won't happen anymore, because now we have recordings. But you think about things not even that long ago. I mean, you think of things a couple hundred years in the past where that are written in dialect, and no one has any record of how that dialect was actually spoken. And we're just making guesses at that, right? Uh, where if you had some sort of 
universal phonetic code. Well, we do. I mean, IPA does do that in its way. Although it's a little cumbersome is the one thing I would say about IPA. Is it's a little cumbersome. I think even for linguists who are pretty practiced at reading IPA, there's a lot more brain activity interpreting Dude, them into sound than there is for I other want things. It, you know? I want it. I think there's some people who are very good where it's getting close to the way you would read normal text. For some but... reason, there's something about the, or learning IPA and the pronunciations and the exactitude of pronunciations. You know, if you could give me, like, I swear to God, if you could give me, like, um, the word meaning with the word in English, but I could learn it and pronounce it exactly. Like, if you could give me, like, some... Portuguese poetry, and and I teach me IPA, yeah. and tell me this is exactly how you pronounce it using IPA. I feel like I could learn the language faster. Well, in some ways, I think you're right. I mean, I think I think of when you think of things where you're learning a language by listening to people pronouncing things. There's always so much variation in the individual and in how they're pronouncing something. For sure. Although. I mean, that's also part of the language, right? Is there is, in reality, variation in those things. But, <laughs> but yeah, I think you're right. In some ways, it would be faster if you could just read it the way that it's supposed to be pronounced. Um, just, you know, like, like it doesn't even have to be like the entire book of Although, I'll tell you what, from a language acquisition level, which is a whole sidetrack, but I wouldn't worry too much about pronunciation because if you know how to say things and you're pronouncing everything wrong, that's a real easy thing to fix really fast because everyone's going to understand what you're saying and just be like, oh, man, you're you're not saying that right. And wow. they'll just correct that for you, and that's not a big deal. That reminds uh, me of my slam piece that they made me do. Did, I, did we talk about that last episode? We talked that you had done it, yeah. But you didn't tell me what I did? Did I tell you what I did? About the about the menu, I read the menu. Yeah, yeah. The and menu, I was like trying yeah. to pronounce shit in the menu, and there everyone's laughing at me, of course, because I can't pronounce anything. And you know, well, I have this um, Italian exchange student right now. And she was asking today, which was funny, but it's one of those pronunciation things. She was like, "I don't understand why everyone doesn't know what I'm saying." Because she was saying won't and want want with the same pronunciation. Want. She was saying them both as won't. Uh, I want instead of I want. And so people were getting very confused. That's because I heard that. Yes. Because that because the A, maybe the maybe the ah, uh, maybe that sound doesn't like Want, won't, want. Okay, so like... Well, once, uh, once uh, I mean, uh, uh, two other students were explaining that to her, and once they did, she figured it out. But it's somewhat self-corrective once you realize it. Wow. But that was the thing. She had been do doing it for a while and kept being like, I don't know why people don't understand it. Wow. And so they explained it. They were like, no, you need to have... It needs to be won't versus want. Like, those are different sounds in English. Like, and, you need to... And also how you make those sounds with your mouth won't like won't and want but it's one of those funny things though because you can imagine plenty of sentences where you would say i won't or i want yeah and it would be 
totally different meanings if you exchange those two words. You're actually making the chamber of your mouth larger to pronounce the A. Well, yeah. Want and won't. No, it's like, um, it's... It's not about it being. It's about what you're doing with your lips, right? One is a. I wish I could remember those terms. There are specific linguistic terms for that, but I don't remember them. It's about what you're doing with your, you're lips. your lips. Yeah, that's about how you're shaping your limbs, lips for those vowel sounds. Even though you're not, uh, you're not doing anything different with your tongue or really with your vocal cords. At that, it's it's about how you're shaping your lips, right? Whoa! Wow. But yeah, no, I don't know. That's a whole sidetrack in some way, but it's an, it's an interesting thing, right? I don't know. Well, and that's another thing, though. We're talking about that, and that's a funny thing, and that kind of gets down to with a lot of things that I think people have trouble with about poetry is poetry, we embrace both of those things. We embrace... meaning as communication but we also embrace meaning as creating miscommunication that might be better communication in some level which is like you've got to have an ability of having some cognitive dissonance to really make sense of those things that's an interesting way to put it about like i use that phrase profitable ambiguities or like the weird space is in your poetry where you have a weird phrase or something that's pushing the meaning of the thing. I don't like, uh, like, yeah, you create the, you create useful misunderstandings or something, right? Like useful misunderstandings, but which is, you know, about the Dylan, uh, uh, Dylan Thomas's, uh, I heard Christopher Rick's lecture on the antipon. Words that are words that mean the opposite themselves. Okay, yeah, yeah. Like, like um, uh, he's he's not moving. He's still, but the river is still running. Okay, like, yeah, 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 means, yeah. Right? If something's still, it's not moving. If something's still going, it's still. But yeah, but I think about surrealism and Dada, and they so much. That's so much of how that stuff works, right? And sometimes within your own language, it doesn't even have to be between languages for that to happen, right? Definitely not. But I think that's important. Well, and I don't know, and then you, and then there's so much connections with psychology in that, and part of it is trusting. Sometimes that your subconscious mind knows more than your conscious mind does. Which I know for the Surrealists came out of Freud in that even though Freud has been largely debunked, I still think our modern neurology tells us very much that the amount that is stored in our brain that we can't access is very vast. Right, and I think sometimes you're tapping into things that are in your brain that are not easy to access necessarily that you don't have the recall ability to pull up. And you create some very profitable associations in that way, right? Which is interesting. But it's always about creating a balance between more everyday communication and creating 
those jumps, those jumps to things that we all understand because they're all in the back of our minds even if we don't consciously understand them. But that's a hard thing to sell because it's ambiguous in some way, right? It is ambiguous, but... But I find in reality, and I mean, I, I'm sure you feel the same thing, I don't think either of us write poetry that is particularly easy to understand, and it relies on a lot of those ambiguities. But I find that when you're in a situation where you actually present those to people where they're not worried about it, where they're not under the stress of, oh, I need to know what this means, that they're very receptive to it. And they can kind of find those meanings. I think a lot of the problem is that the way that we present literature to people puts this extra stress of them having, feeling like they have to come up with some correct answer. Right. Right. Like they can't hover in the indeterminate. And I'm not even just talking about school, right? I'm talking about like you're like, all right, people use, how do people use literature in the day-to-day? They use it as if they're trying to make a reference to something that you're supposed to get. And I don't think that's what literature is ever really trying to do. I don't know. Trying to look up the ant the, the antipon the idea behind the, the antipon ah uh, that's an interesting idea I don't know if I've heard that specific idea well it said it was actually coined by Ricks which is interesting while you're probably familiar with the idea of puns it is in Paradise Lost that the so-called antipun comes into play this term coined by Ricks in the Force of Poetry describes a pun which denies rather than incorporates multiple meanings, whereas in a pun, there are two senses which either get along or quarrel, and in anti-pun, there is only one sense admitted, but there is another sense denied admission. The problem in Paradise Lost is that if we include the fallen meaning of edemic puns, we inadvertently corrupt the pure pre-lapsarian meaning. This problem has been formulated into an idea of reader-response by Stanley Fish in his work, Surprised by Sin. Well, the anti-pun is kind of like... Yeah, but I wish I had this this uh, thing that he talks about, Dylan Thomas. I mean, we probably will have to go and dig up um, his uh, book that he, that, he wrote, that he wrote called The Force of Poetry. Oxford, 1984. Maybe we should move on to other things, anyhow. That's fine. So the general idea of this whole episode was... Well, yeah, we we have strayed somewhat far from our initial idea, but maybe we can continue with the part that you said of how do you... Well, this... This... uh, I mean, we were going to talk about beneficial ways to get people into poetry or the outreach poetry, but I like this thing that you wrote, not just any poetry, but poetry that has depth and originality in it. Is isn't just poetry designed to be liked by people who don't like poetry. So that's kind of funny, too, because, you know, there is a lot of that. Well, I mean, and I think that's a hard thing. I think as poets, no matter where you are in your stance as a poet, you recognize that you are a subgroup. 
that that's not something that the average person likes. And I understand the inclination to try to get more people to enjoy poetry and like poetry. But I also think there's a danger that in doing that, you erode what poetry is. And that's the difficult part of that. Like, how do you promote poetry without eroding what poetry is? Wow. I don't, I, don't, I don't think I have an answer to that question. No, I mean, I don't know that I have an answer to it, too. But, but I know that, to me, and I mean, this podcast is part of that. That's part of what we're doing this podcast, right? Is we sure. would like to, I don't know, although I imagine most of our listeners are probably poets, but maybe not. But I would like to expand understanding of poetry and appreciation of poetry to people outside of just the people who are poets but i would like to do it in a way where where we allow poetry to be the complex and wonderful and amazing thing that it is and not reduce it to something less than what it is and and i worry that sometimes when people try to try to promote poetry they reduce it to something i don't know i mean do we want to talk about this recent new york times op-ed the reduction of poetry. Well, yeah, I, I just, I saw that and I was just like, what the hell, man? Like, and it was more disturbing to me because this was a contest sponsored by the Poetry Society of America. And it just also makes me worried about all these organizations that I know, I mean, they do a lot of good things, don't get me wrong, but I feel like they get so caught up in promoting poetry that they don't, that they're actually maybe eating away at the foundations of what poetry is. But yeah, yeah, go ahead. Tell 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 us what this is about. Well, I don't even... Do you, have you ever heard of this poet before? Is this a poet or just someone who selected the poems for the... Nicholas Kristof? I think that is not a poet. I think he's just a columnist for the New York Times. Okay. So he chose from... This, this so is this is a contest sponsored by the Poetry Society of America. That And what is the idea of the contest? Uh, it's just the readers, uh, there's 2,750 poems submitted, and it was a Trump poetry contest. But did they define what that means, or they just said anything related to Trump? Is that what it was? I don't know. I don't know. think that's in here. That's not it in doesn't here. tell it's us. It's just the winners. I honestly could not find it on the Poetry Society's website, which is weird. I tried to. You looked for the contest? Yeah. Entry form? Okay. Well, there was a Trump well, poetry. the contest was over, so I don't know at this point, but yeah. Well, I mean, there's a Trump poetry contest. So the, the title of the op-ed is uh, Trump is inspirational, dot, 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 for poetry, which is... Already horrifying. Well, already, I mean, what's he already <laughs> saying, you know? He's just saying they're offering us a mix of humor, bite, and hope. It's like, okay. And his number, I guess his first poem is this, by Richard Kenny a published poet from Port Townsend, Washington, offered a prayer. Dear Generals Three, if he asked for the football, link arms, take a knee. That's terrible. (laughs) I mean, the fact that that even ended up as the first poem in the New York Times, is this supposed to be funny? Is it supposed to be making light of a horrific situation that we're in? Okay. But first of all, it's not funny. Second of all, 
It's reliant on... I mean, it's pretty much the opposite of everything that poetry is. It's, it's, not even very, it's not even very precise in any sort of way. It's reliant on you understanding that the nuclear launch codes are in a briefcase and are called the football, which might not be something that you would necessarily know. And it's weird to do that. So you're, gonna, you're taking a shortcut already by calling it the football. And then it's a very bad pun based on having that understanding. I didn't know that. Oh, you didn't know that that's what that was. Yeah, no. that's what it is. That's the idea, right? Like that that suitcase that is carried around to like the current football situation. No. Huh. Well, but it's re- but it is referencing that as well, of course. Right. But you understand, you know, but it's like you know you know that right like the they always have the I don't know. I is it a CIA agent I suppose that always has to follow the president around with the briefcase handcuffed to their arm. And they call it the football, and it has the l- nuclear launch codes in it. I want to read this girl's poem. Uh, I want to read this girl. <laughs> this girl's poem deception. Oh no! All right, go for it. I mean, this is. It says that it's from Natalie Calderon, a 17-year-old Latina student. America, the so-called land of the free, but is it still free if I take a knee? Our president wants to make America great again, but keeps putting roadblocks in the path of equality. I'm worried things will only get worse from here. I adjure to feel secure, but how can I when my so-called leader is acting so immature? My hope is in humanity is fading because of all the degrading. My heart hurts as racism is pervading. I feel anger in my soul as it anchors my stomach my spirit is damaged by the baggage of hate I carry but I must stay strong for the struggles to come I just hope my pride doesn't go numb I just feel really bad for that girl though because what was her name? Natalie because Natalie is obviously a perceptive girl. She's 17 years old and she's writing that. She's a perceptive girl and she has interest in writing. But there's no doubt that some idiot goddamn teacher told her that that's what writing was. And didn't say, hey, you know, I'm glad you're interested in writing and I'm glad that you have these deep feelings about something that's outside of yourself and that is important and that is related to things that are related to you but let's find a way to actually make that a real visceral experience through writing rather than let's write a goddamn hallmark card you know well i the funny thing about this even is like the way he introduced these the way he introduces like the one so he's like oh okay this guy did this and and then he did the like the little opening piece there, and this is like, a, you know, introduces the second poet in sort of a weird way. And the third one, he's like, "Oh, my, many entries attack Trump, but not all." And this guy from this place says that he's a conservative who disagrees in Trump, but thinks Democrats need to drop the condensation. He uh, he wrote the poem Perce- "Perceptive from a Hardworking American," perspective from a hardworking American. 
and okay, and then and then he and then and then he does that poem, but then he goes in a similar vein. This person, a retired lawyer in Texas, ended her elegy on an uplifting note. Her poem, her poem, condescend here, condensed here is called. Sorry, fucking edited her poem. Whatever he comes back, it's like oh, her poem uh, condensed here is called. Who says Trump and poetry are incompatible? It's just like the way he introduces them. It's like very. I don't know. Well, he's trying to create a news story, and I understand that to some extent. The part that really bothers me is that this is a contest sponsored by Poetry Society of America. Yep. And that's some bullshit. (laughs) Right? That's not poetry. And that's what happens, though, and you convince these people that they're writing poetry, and they're not. And I don't know. And look, I mean, I know we've kind of come out on the side of being uncertain of how you present politics and poetry. Although not against it, but I think if you're going to do it, you need to do it in a complex way. Because that's that's an important part of poetry, is it needs to be complex. It can't be simplistic. And that's the real problem with all that shit, is it's simplistic as hell. Like you can't, no one is going to get anything out of reading that. That they didn't have before they read it. And that's a big problem. Yeah. Right? It's confirmation bias in the worst kind of way. And it fits into the same terrible tendency of news that is going on in confirmation bias and that. And it's just more of that. It's just more of that. I think this is a trend, but I really think like what's going on is in 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 this world in in one sense of the world of poetry is that a lot of people are you know there's a lot of safe poets out there you know and there's a lot of poetry that's being pushed and it's and they want to keep it a safe a safe thing okay well so now i feel like i have to bring up something that is a little bit of a sensitive topic but when i first remember coming on the radar is 10 10- is it 10,000? Or maybe it was 10,000 and changed to 100,000? Poets for Change. Yeah. And while I agree with the sentiment of what they're trying to do, I feel that it's simultaneously damaging to both their cause and poetry at the same time. Okay. Even though I know... That we both have friends who are involved with this movement. True. To think that in any sort of way that having a bunch of poets coalesce about a cause is going to make any discernible difference in that cause (laughs) is insane. Like you're taking something that's already a very small subculture, and thinking that you're going to somehow influence policy through that? Like, that doesn't make any sense. And then what really ends up happening is you have a lot of things that are not really poetry, and that are, frankly, not only not poetry, but really unnuanced 
and boring ways of looking at the topic that you're talking about and unhelpful ways of looking at the topic that you're talking about. Unhelpful as far as actually making any progress on those topics. I mean, I don't know. I haven't seen much action, you know, on it. And I don't know, like, what it's even the current status of it is. And Let me read you some, uh, some of the advertisements on their websites for events that are going on. Do we have <laughs> New Resistance Poetry Wall. The Resistance Poetry Wall has been opened to a call by many for an open and central place to post poetry about the recent U.S. elections. Poets from the world are invited to post. Oh, let's go to the wall. We'll just read whatever happens to come up first. Poetry Wall. The key. Love sees no colors, knows no boundaries, feels no limits. Love is the question, the answer, and the absolution. Love is the key to each and every mystery that ever existed within all of history. Nope. Love sees no countries, believes no symbols, bows to no master. If you're looking for happiness, if you're looking for truth, here's the answer. I'll give it to you. If you're looking for meaning and you wish to stop dreaming, love is the answer. I'll give it to you. May the peace of a thousand whales grace us today and every day <laughs> as we find our way in this upside down world. We may, may we find our courage to speak our truth always, love often, seek compassion daily. Our humanity must rise to the occasion to take a stand that forces good over evil in everything we do. For if not, we are no better than the perpetrators of hate that divide the universe. Wow. Oh, let's see the next next post on there. Oh, let's see where is the next substantive post on here. Some of them just are thing uh, pictures, you know. Oh, this is a this is a wonderful ad. Santa Rosa, California, a hundred thousand poets for change, poets against the Trump agenda. Sunday, January twenty second, twenty seventeen, two to four p.m. And there's a it's. An American flag with words in different parts of the American flag. In our America, all people are equal. Love wins. Black lives matter. Immigrants, refugees are welcome. Disabilities are respected. Women are in charge of their bodies. People in planet are values over profit. Diversity is celebrated. Open mic. Plus poetry, and they list all the people reading and singing the blues with, and they list the people singing the blues. Drown him out. And they have a picture of Donald Trump with a no sign over it. That's like a utopian sort of understanding of America, because that's not really what America is. Man, if you dislike the things going around in the country, that is not doing anything to help any of that. That's a bunch of narcissistic bullshit. Like, that's what that's really about. None of that is useful in any way, either aesthetically or changing the minds of anyone. I mean, I'm not, yeah, I don't think, like, anyone's going to go up there and, you're right, like, no one's going to go on this website and have, like, a premonition and change their ways, you know? Like, I, to me, that's honestly insulting for them to use the word poet in their name. <laughs> that is not poetry. They are not poets. It's also insulting to those causes. 
because they're commodifying those causes. That's what that really is. It's like, that, that's the double horrible standard that's going on there. It's like, on the one hand, I'm a poet, and no one's paying attention to my poetry because it sucks. So I'm going to attach it to some things that people have real visceral reactions to because it affects their life. And I'm going to use that to sell my shitty fucking poetry. That's what's going on. Right? Well, I don't even think... I mean, to me, those poems you read, just like people who just stumbled on there was like, oh, I'm going to write on the poetry wall. Yeah, except that I know better than that. I know that if you went to the actual readings, that that's what people would be reading. Yeah, you might be right. And I also know that there are people we know, who some of whom are, are very good poets, who are shamed into being involved with this shitty organization. Because they feel like if they don't, they aren't socially responsible or something. Yeah, I don't know, man. It never seemed like a real good outlet for anything that I was into. I mean, uh, I don't know. It didn't really seem to inspire me in any way when I when that. It's not about inspiring. It's beyond not being inspiring. It's just offensive. That's offensive. It really is. On both levels, whether you care about those causes or whether you're a poet, it's offensive on both of those levels to me. It just really is. Well, I don't really know. I mean, I don't know how many too many poets in town who are like deeply involved in that. I don't know. Do you know? Yeah. Uh, why don't you go to the 10,000 Poets for Change Facebook page and see how many of your Facebook friends who are poets are members of that page. I think you will be shocked. The New Orleans one? Yeah. I think you'll be shocked how many people are members of that page. How many people like it? And we can redact the names, but I'm just telling you, I think it's going to be a lot of fucking people. Yep. There's some people on here I don't necessarily... Uh, I mean, it kind of all makes sense. I mean, sure, it makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah, well, it might make sense, but I'm just saying. You do know people who are involved with this, or at least want to pretend that they're involved with, which I think is part of the like shaming aspect of this <laughs> nonsense. Of like, They feel like they're... There's some names. There's some names not on this list that I think would have been. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there's definitely some uh, some names who I totally knew were going to be already on the list. Yeah. But it's a lot of names. Well, you know, yeah, of course, because there's like, you know. I don't even care, so I'm just gonna say it. But like, look, there's there's even a there's even a. There's like you know, there's like it's like a it's like a it's like a colonial thing because there's like all sorts of little chapters of this thing. So there's a fucking te- there's a hundred thousand posts for change North Shore. Yeah. So there's like yeah, I, I didn't know that. Well, that's pretty crazy in its own right, and it is also like a systemic problem if you're trying to create an organization. That's a bad idea to divide it into all these little chapters, but it's gonna get picked up by other people with bad ideas. No, no, and I, I just feel like that's a real problem. 
And I feel like it feeds into itself. Like, I feel like on the one hand, you've got people... Look. These are real issues, and these are important things. But I don't know, that's pretty masturbatory to feel like you're going to get together with a bunch of other poets, and then that's going to make even the smallest ripple. And then, and then what happens is you get a really simplistic, idiotic understanding of these issues. Because there's no nuance there. There's no complexity. That's really, I mean, if you are a member of one of those things, I think you need to look at yourself for a second and say, is that really about the issue or is that about how you are worried about people perceiving you? You know? There's a lot of that, of course, you know. Uh, so, so <laughs> you're I, like, all right, that's too. Uh, <laughs> it's heavy. <laughs> Not really, but I mean, but like, it comes back full circle to like, you know. Okay, but then it takes me to like the other movement I have in my notes. What is it called? Black poets speak out, which is a, a big thing on Instagram and Twitter. Okay. Which I think is much better than 100,000 Poets for Change in some way. Okay. And actually promotes some good poetry. Okay. Some good poetry. It also promotes some bad poetry. But there are some good poetry in there. And they actually do a good job of looking back at some black poets who were saying some of the things that needed to be said previously. Okay. And having people read those at current readings now, which is a positive thing about it. Definitely. But I think it falls into some of the same traps, even though it's not as bad. I don't know. Think about people that you admire. Think about poets that you admire. Who are addressing complicate? Who are addressing? I'm jumping ahead of my own thought. Think about poets that you admire who are addressing political issues at their time. All of them, to me, what I admire about them is that even if they've got a specific bent of what they're going towards, they acknowledge the complexity of the issue, and. They're self-doubting in their poetry in some way. And that's the thing that I really see that is lacking in all of these movements. And it really concerns me and worries me. And it also echoes the social media culture and it echoes the news culture that's going on. But there's no self-doubt. There's no self-criticism of... There's this over certainty of the position that you're taking i mean yeah today's in today's society and world that we live in because like i don't know it's like a lot of there's always self-doubt so much self-doubt no there should be but i don't think there is much self-doubt you think there is i i I mean i i think i'm always (laughs) self-doubting yeah but i'm not talking about you man i'm talking about Look at the way people present themselves in the world. Do you see a lot of self-doubt there? Because I don't. I don't know. And I think for poetry, it's particularly important to have doubt. <laughs> right. 
I think that's part of what draws us to poetry. Well, it's part of what keeps me hovering in this sort of middle, you know, of like this sort of like middle space where I can like create out of, you know, sometimes you need some self-doubt to create something new. And if you don't ever push yourself to create new or have self-doubt that you won't be able to create new. I don't know. Well, yeah, that's true. That's true for sure, right? Because if you're doing anything interesting, you're going to probably have some self-doubt about it. But I'm also talking about political issues, right? Like, if you're dealing with... I mean, I don't know. I mean, and this is like a weird thing for us to talk about because I don't think either of us are like sitting down to write a poem about a political issue. Although I certainly think both of us have those issues come up in our poetry at times. Sure. But I think that's the difference, right? Is... Yeah, I've tried. I've tried to do it, you know. I've definitely sat down and, like, had a reactionary response to something that's gone on and it's political. You know. Well, look. If I think of any good political poem I've ever read... There are two ways that they're good. One is they're so totally opposite to the establishment idea that that makes them interesting. Or they're not, but they're acknowledging the complexity of the idea as they're talking about the subject. If you're not doing one or the other of those things, you have no business writing a poem about a political subject. Because that's the only way that it's interesting. You know, you got to be doing one or the other. you got to be way out in left field, or you've got to be in the place that your tribe is, and that's fine. But then you've got to be questioning the beliefs that you have at the same time. Those are the only two possibilities. Really. Because, and well, that's not even just poetry, but for poetry that's particularly important. That's actually just being a human being when it really comes down to it, because you shouldn't be that far one way or the other, right? I found it. Alright, alright. So this is your poem that you wrote uh, with Chandler. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is a two, it's a two, it's a, it's a quite long, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's quite long. It's called. It's called. Um. It's called. Me- it's called memory hold memory holes. Okay. Uh. It's for Professor James Tracy, professor at Florida Atlantic University. All right. Uh. It's a two voice piece. So I'm gonna just go back and forth between the lines. Okay. Yeah. I'm just gonna do a little <laughs> bit of it, right? Uh. Memory hold. Memory holes. Identities. Identities of individuals. ID the individual. Scrubbed audio. Scrub the audio. Sounds that way so that the article is in agreement. Of each article in agreement. Orchestral maneuvers. The orchestra maneuvers carnage immediately in immediacy of carnage to grieve, for example, where high verse examples, examiners high versed are samples for the examiners. Uncertain as footage. Uncertain footage. Through delivery described, transposed delivery method, points to going on where, let's point to what's going on at reporters no longer, reporters no longer report, look beyond initial skepticism, nor look beyond the skeptics to enter the building, they enter the building. 
to enter a specific contract, they they enter the town within the site's damage. They enter within the town, new or well-established, then a home they enter. Corrections omit. Omit the corrections. Ski mask and or black clothing. Now, ski mask, now the black clothing, or around and about. Wait, when, wait, shortly after there, or shortly before, wait, shortly before. Whether or not there was any, wait, was there any sound of entering the building, sound made upon entering. A building, any construction, the building that's under construction. Everything on tape. Wait, everything is on tape. Attending mass when they attended the masses. The shooting guns, butter, the cameras are still shooting. Recovered, quote, at the scene. Recovering quotes at the scene. A gun, handed. An open storyline. Handed, they handed a gun. And then the open storyline changes the additions altogether. The changes will be made ad hoc within 24 hours. No further intention. 24 hours with no further mention of... I'll stop there. All right. Well... I'll say the part I like about it is that it leaves ambiguity there. Uh, I'm not even going to tell you what it's about, but it's political. It's a political thing that happened yeah. in the country. But it leaves ambiguity there. I like that aspect. I don't know why I just read that, but I guess it's part of the conversation about... I, don't know, I think it's very difficult to make a political piece of literature. You know what I've been reading that I love... What's that? <laughs> and and I wish everyone would read because I never knew it existed, man. Um, I like Julio Cortazar so much. Have you read much Cortazar? No. But you've probably read Hopscotch or something, yeah, right? Yeah, maybe that. Um, I really like Cortazar, but... You would love this, man. You would actually really love this piece this piece. Um, I never knew it existed. Actually, you know, when we were in California, I found it at, at City Lights, and um, I didn't know what it was, and it's called Phantomas versus the Multinational Vampires, an Attainable Utopia. Apparently, Cortazar was involved in a bunch of different Latin American countries at the time, had this meeting that accused the United States CIA of being involved in in different coups and different things. How's this relate to our topic again? Well, this is a political... How do you make political literature? <laughs> so, he was involved in this meeting. Maybe I should say more specifics, but that's what I remember, is that it was about accusing America of being involved in all these different coups. Of course. Then don't we know that that all happened? Of course it happened. But it was not acknowledged that it happened at the time. It, oh, of course not. But there was this group accusing the United States of this, and he was there doing that. So he wrote this amazing piece... And he took this Mexican comic book series about this superhero, Phantomas, and it is has Cortazar as a character attending this meeting, 
But the superhero Phantomas is also there. And they're trying to like stop the disinformation from the United States government. And Susan Sontag is a character and like uh, various different um, literary people of the time. Oh, because the plot is that in addition to trying to deny that they're doing this, they're also trying to assassinate all these literary figures that are exposing their crimes. And so Phantom Moss is involved in stopping them. But Phantom Moss is kind of stupid. So he took... There was this weird thing with this Mexican comic book, Phantom Moss at the time, where they were using historical figures in the comic books... So he took the comic books where they used the historical figures and just took all the images from the comic books and rewrote the dialogue, and those are periodically inserted into this text. Like, it's mostly, like, a fiction text, but then periodically you'll get pages of the comic book with dialogue inserted into the into the character's mouth. That's funny that Siri accidentally just picked up what you just said. It's amazing. And to me, it's like, if you're going to try to make some political commentary on something, it's the gold standard of how you would do that. Because it's wonderful. It's incorporating pop culture in a way where you're distorting it, but also being complicated and interesting in how you're commenting on the thing that you're upset about. Yeah. And I don't think that happens now. Very much. Not really. Some people are working in that medium. Some people are trying to, but I haven't seen much that I've been... I mean, and I I wish that it was happening. But I don't see much that I've been impressed with in that regard. And part of what's wonderful about that cortisol, like I'm talking about, is... Again, there's a game involved. There's the fun of, this is a comic book that you know... And it's also f- silly in some level. It's like, oh yes, in addition to the CIA propping up governments, they're also breaking Susan Sontag's legs, which is funny. <laughs> and then you get to have like the soap opera tropes of like Susan Tug- Sontag being like, oh, Phantom Mass. Yeah. You're so dreamy. <laughs> Which is wonderful. I want to see these. I've never seen this. It's so good. Yeah. (laughs) I want to see this shit. You know, and I don't know. And I mean, I understand that that's a difficult balance to hit. But I feel like that's the balance you need to hit if you're trying to do something with this. Like, you can't be super serious, but you can't be too fluffy at the same time you need to hit that medium where you're doing both where it's funny but it's also substantive which is difficult admittedly yeah i i in during my mfa and my undergrad poetry workshops i always tried to like bring more humor into the classroom and the work and i'm like in the play like the play of the workshop you know yeah like it was yeah. serious so i would do oh like, yeah visual poetry yeah, yeah. and people would be like what my one teacher was like, what the, what is this? Like, we're, I'm like, I want you to workshop this. It's a visual poem. Like, I want you to workshop it. Like, and he refused to workshop it. He's like, 
I don't even know how we would approach talking about this. And I'm just like, you know, so it's like, it was always like a challenge. For yeah, me. and that's and crazy that- though, right? Like, because you're talking about someone who is, in theory, a professional poet. A professor of poetry. To not understand that that's a valid medium enough to even, even if you don't like what the person's doing, that that's someone bringing that to your workshop to not be like, all right, yeah, this is valid. Let's talk about it. Whether it was well done or not, that's important, right? And, I mean, I think you're right. There's this dismissive aspect. Well, and that's part of what is disturbing to me about, like, this fucking Trump poetry contest. It's so disturbing. If it was just... If it was just the New York Times doing that, it'd be like, all right, you're a newspaper. You don't understand poetry. But this is the fucking Poetry Society of America <laughs> endorsing this. This is their contest. Oh, my God. This is a true No Good Poetry episode right here, number 33. No, that's nonsense. Like It is nonsense. You know, like, that's, that's like, and that's exactly what you're talking about. It's the same thing as it's nonsense for someone teaching at an MFA program for you to turn in a visual poem and be like, I don't know how to... Look at this. I don't know how to comment on this. And if you've never considered mo- visual poetry, you're not a poet. I mean, he, I remember it being like insulting, and he's like, "We're going to move on to the next poem." And I'm like, "Oh my fucking god! Like what?" Really? I mean, you can say maybe this is not. You're like, okay, you can comment on the validity of it as a visual poem, sure, but to just not even comment on it again, it's safe, man. It's all safe, everyone. This is the problem. This is this is the base. This is the basis behind what I wanted to start this podcast for. Was like, you know, let's talk about why poetry shouldn't be safe. You know, and I asked John Sinclair, like, how can we make poetry? What do you think about so? You know, so he's like, oh well, you know, it's like, you know, yeah, it's still got the power in the, you know, in the words, and you know, but it's like, I don't know, man. It's like, it's like so discouraging sometimes, like thinking about like what power poetry can still have and like what it can still do and the way people treat it and the way people what they call it and. It's, they claim it's poetry, but it's not poetry. It's something different. All right, well, I'm going to say something that is partially affirming and partially depressing at the same time and totally about what you're saying. So I'm, I have my students turn in these poems. Okay. Well, I've had them read all this stuff that I don't think they totally... Oh, man, I read, made them read Second Avenue... Franco Harris, Second Avenue, you know? And I was like, oh, this is like a beginnings of long poems in modern American poetry. But they just, it's a hard thing for them to read because they're not reading that in their regular classes. And just other things. And I had them read some Bernadette Mayer and I had them read some other things, some various New York school people and some. But this one kid took it to heart. And he turned something in for this workshop, which was not a good poem, but it was had all the hallmarks of being open to doing something interesting and good. And it didn't make a lot of sense. And he did interesting things where he was rearranging letters of words and making things that weren't words inside of them. Wow. Which I was proud of. That's nice to be trying to do that. Yeah. And it didn't work. 
entirely. <laughs> it didn't work. It didn't work. But. But I actually think it was probably the best thing anyone turned in for this workshop, right? Despite the fact that it didn't work. He was trying to push the language somewhere. And he was trying to do something interesting. But his classmates were very negative. Huh. Uh, so it's kind of both things. It was It's a positive and a negative. Because there are students who are very open to those things out there. Sure. When they're exposed to them. I think the negative thing to me is that most of them never get exposed to them. They never have that opportunity. I think about that, and I get worried. I'm like, oh, I'm giving them all these things, and they hate them. I'm giving them Bernadette Mayer's selections from Midwinter Day. I'm giving them Andre Breton. I'm giving them Ted Berrigan. I'm giving them all these things that are difficult to understand. And they hate them sometimes. They really do. They really hate it sometimes. <laughs> Um, but then I have to remind myself, like, would I have understood that when I was 16 years old? Yeah, probably not. Probably not, and I wish someone would have... Showed it to me. How long did it take me to find those things? (laughs) Yeah. How many people do we know who are professional poets who have no idea who these people are? You know? but because most, po- I just don't think like most poets like read like I think that they get a type of they get to a circle of poetry that they like whether it's the people that they know who write poems and they don't explore anymore. That's really depressing to me. Well, I mean, I think of like, and I mean, we are not typical people, but how we spend our free time. And everyone needs relaxing time. But to me, a lot of my relaxing time is spent, (laughs) whether it's reading or listening to or ingesting things that are valuable on an artistic level. Your feed, man. That's that's because, like, people's feed is, like, Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and, like, our guest earlier who was working here for Snapchat. But But how do you uh, make, how do you convince people that, yeah, you know what? Yeah, we all need to relax, man. But to me, it's more relaxing to re- to read Julio Cartazar's Phantomas versus the Multinational Vampires. Oh, you're a freak, dude. Than some fucking <laughs> like than watching some fucking shitty television show. Or even better yet, like purging on like three hours of YouTube, watching just like nonsense. Yeah, know, like, Gangnam Style. You know. And whatever, and I mean, not that you, not that there's no space for that, because some of that is amazing poetry in its own right. If you recognize the bizarrity of it, yeah. But if you're just feeding your head with that all the time, that you're not thinking. No, it's just more like uh, lowering the bar. I don't know, maybe. And I don't know. I don't know what you do with any of that, you know? And that's getting us out of poetry on some level. That's getting us into the horrible wiles of the negativity of capitalism. Oh, 
my god. Which we can't even really Talk fucking about address. Yeah, well, we can, <laughs> but I mean, we'd be here all day. We've already been here all day. We're at 96 minutes. I know. I hope you can get an episode out of this. I, I have a request, <laughs> though, for our closing song. We didn't even barely touch any of the things on our notes of what we, we were going to talk we, about. We talked a little bit around it, but... Yeah. yeah, our closing song. What's your request for the closing song? Well, I mean, you can edit it in, but I don't know if you know this one, but uh, I, and we can, and you know, whatever. I'm going to play it here, but we're, you can edit this in the actual song, but you know, this is like... This comes back to a central right. central topic of our of our of our. Uh... Who can kill a general in his bed? Overthrow dictators if they're red. Fucking amen. CIA man. Who can buy a government so cheap? Change a cabinet without a. CIA man Who can train gorillas by the dozens Send them out to kill their untrained cousins Fucking amen CIA man 